Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and the Power to Change the World. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, a Penguin Random House 10-speed press publication, and I write the Ask the Labor Nurse blog for fitpregnancy.com. This podcast is my way of letting you all in on the fascinating conversations I get to have with people who are making serious inroads to improving the lives of women and mothers. So when I was writing my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, my first draft was a lot longer than the finished product. By a lot, I mean like twice or three times the size of the book I'd been contracted to write. That's because I added a lot of feminist ranting about reproductive health, maternal health, prenatal care, the status of women in the world, and how all that impacts our ability to mother, raise our children well, make a living, and essentially thrive as women. I read a lot about gender equity, feminism, and how it impacts every aspect of women's lives for a variety of organizations and outlets. And frankly, I can get pretty riled up about it. I could talk, write, and rant about this all day long. My editor thought it might be wise to not turn my pregnancy book into an angry op-ed piece, but she also respected that feminism plays an important role in improving motherhood. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, be prepared to get your pregnancy information with a solid dose of feminism, because the way we dole out prenatal care and the way we treat women in labor and delivery, the obstetrician and midwife's offices, the pediatrician's office, and in society as we live our lives as mothers, it's patriarchal, it's authoritarian, and women aren't generally the ones in charge. That is, unless we take charge, and I, for one, seriously believe that's what it's going to take to improve our pregnancy, birth, and parenting experiences. In fact, I think we can extend that to include the state of the world at large. When women take larger roles in society, government, education, medicine, and technology, hell, everything, our viewpoints and our values, our needs and wants are represented. When we're in charge, we'll see more serious changes take place that'll make the world more peaceful, more beneficial to all, more egalitarian, more everything. It's time, and today's podcast is all about the role feminism plays in motherhood. Um, just to give you an example from the book of areas that cover the crossroad between feminism and motherhood, I want to read a, just a short, short snip from chapter two in from a section called Who's on your labor team and how to keep your labor room drama free? We call the people who will be with you during labor supporters or your labor team. Labor coach is old school, calling up images of a man with a whistle and a stopwatch bossing a laboring mother around. Seriously, who needs that? Women should be in charge of their own bodies during labor. They don't need to be coached or told what to do. They do, however, need lots of love, support, gentle reminders, back rubs, encouragement, positive affirmations, and help making decisions. In chapter 12, I write a section about VBACs, and I'm going to encourage you to read it. I give the history of how VBACs became such a huge control issue. Um, That's vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, Such a big control issue that doctors refused to allow women to deliver their babies the way they wanted. They went against their will. They manipulated and even forced women into surgeries they really didn't need, and in some cases, even threatened women with legal action and removal of custody of their newborn if they refused prescribed care. So much of that goes on in maternal health, Um, and it's about who's in control, and far too often, it's not the woman, 
having the baby. That's got to change. I want to get a friend of mine in on this conversation because she's been very outspoken on this topic. So today I'm talking with Avital Norman Nathman, who's a freelance writer whose work places a feminist lens on a variety of topics, including motherhood, maternal health, pop culture, gender, and reproductive rights. Her work has been featured in Bitch Magazine, Cosmopolitan.com, Every Mother Counts, Queller, The New York Times, CNN, HLN TV, She Knows, RH Reality Check, and many more. Her first book, The Good Mother Myth, Redefining Motherhood to Fit Reality, came out in January 2014 from Seal Press, and she's hard at work on her second book, The Perfect Birth Myth. Hi, Avital. Hi, Jean. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. How's it going? It's good. We have had the stormiest day here in Portland, like 55 mile per hour winds, and I'm really on a lucky block that we've got power, so... Glad to be making the most of it by podcasting with you. That's wonderful. And, and we're here on the East Coast, and they're telling us it's going to be 70 degrees on Christmas. No way. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I don't God. know. What's we, we have like a 1% chance of having snow. But, you know. So you, it, you'll probably have it then. Yeah, it's it's a possibility. Yeah. We'll be in t-shirts. It'll yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so bundled up here. I've even already had a fire in the fireplace today. Oh, I was walking outside without a jacket today. It's okay. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so, Avital, there are so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, it's hard to even know where to start, but let's go with this big grand topic. Sure. I am always talking about the feminism of motherhood, and it starts mm-hmm. well before pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the issues that impact a woman's life at the point of pregnancy are related to her, you know, socioeconomic status, her education level, her ability to support herself and her children, ability to afford health care, child care. These are all issues that show huge gender inequities. So I wanted to get sort of your general thoughts on that and then ask you, what role does feminism play in motherhood? Sure. So that's a loaded question. It's um, a lot. I know. Ramble, please. Um, and it's, But it's two different questions, right? We could talk a little bit about feminism in motherhood and also motherhood within feminism, which I think are two very different and yet very important topics. So for the second one, motherhood within feminism, um, what I felt for a while is that it's kind of a marginalized topic. We love to talk about reproductive health and reproductive rights, but we kind of falter a little bit, and I'm, I'm saying we as in kind of mainstream feminism, uh-huh. um, when it comes to mothering and parenting. And for, you know, for good reason that a lot of the, sh- the vibrancy and a lot of the activism happens perhaps or starts when people are younger and not thinking of parenting and pregnancy and birth and other issues are kind of at the forefront. But then what I find a lot of feminists feeling is that once they – become pregnant and go on to become mothers that they need to really carve out their, their voices and their niche within feminism. And I would, you know, in reproductive health is a spectrum, right? We do have not getting pregnant on one end, but we do have getting pregnant and following that through into parenthood on the other. And I think feminism needs to do um, a better job of supporting and fighting for those women. Cause especially like you said, 
the women that need help the most are kind of at that, at that intersection of race, class, ability, um, sometimes sexuality, and even gender. And so we really need to be doing better as feminists for mothers at, in various groups. That said, um, there are all sorts of you know discussions surrounding feminism within motherhood and what does feminism look like when you're pregnant and what does feminism look like when you're giving birth and what does feminism look like as a parent and with the with um going back to work not going back to work can you be a feminist and a stay-at-home mother is an often trotted out conversation that gets kind of played up a bit just similar to the can you be a feminist and uh change your last name to your partner's married name and I, I think the answer to those two questions are yes, right? Yes. Oh, completely. Um, <laughs> oh, good. But, but it's very easy to kind of straw man argument with all of these things, and I think that that loses focus. And that's going back to how do you bring, how do you get feminism to fight for motherhood or parenthood? And I think there's so many. There's a few organizations that are doing wonderful work, and I think there's a lot of causes, um, and we can start at pregnancy. And looking like you were saying at healthcare and who can afford quality uh, access to quality care and good care and not just kind of a McDonaldization of pregnancy care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we or, go on. Or whatever oh. you can afford because your Medicaid covers that one spot, that one exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, to shout out um, Every Mother Counts and the documentary series that they're running, I think those three episodes really show the struggles of what people can afford and can't afford and the people who are working to fill in those gaps. So um, the doulas in New York City and the birth centers in Florida, you know, these are places and people that are doing incredible work because the government's not really supporting it and um, policies are in place and insurance companies are in place that aren't really supporting um, these marginalized women and marginalized communities. Um, which is a shame because when we look at statistics, as I'm sure you know and possibly have discussed this in the past, but when we look at maternal mortality and fetal mortality, the people getting hit the most are women of color and lower class women because they don't have access. You know, it, it always get um, it always surprises me how we're one of the wealthiest countries. We have one of the wealthiest, the costliest maternity um, care systems in the world. And yet we have one of the highest mortality rates in the developed nation, our industrialized nation. And, you know, there's that divide. And I think that divide and that gap is a feminist issue because of who it's impacting. When you look at the data, you know, I know so, so many, um, young women who prior to becoming pregnant and going through prenatal care and, and then, you know, delivering and eventually sooner rather than later having to go back into the workforce, prior to that experience, they may not have identified themselves as feminists or thought that the subject is irrelevant, that they, up until this point in their life, felt equal on every level, professionally, personally, physically, whatever. Um, But once they became pregnant and they went through a prenatal care experience that was disempowering, um, or maybe they had a childbirth experience where their power was taken away from them. But certainly when they face the issue of when and whether to return to work, that's the moment when and their how much feminism is ignited. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, at that point, then they really get it. 
oh, this is what it means to be a woman in Mm -hmm. American society. And then I think the issue is so many of those women are just struggling to get by that we're not having, they don't have as much free time and expendable income as maybe they did when they were younger, single, um, child free to then focus on the issues that we need. You know, it'd be great to get more of these people who are real having these realizations to then come join us on the front lines of pushing for paid maternal leave or paid paternity leave, government mandated uh, family leave mm-hmm. or flexible time or paid sick leave even, you know, something mm-hmm. so that you're not using up. I just um, wrote a piece for She Knows about paternity leave and how paternity leave is, you know, we talk a lot about maternity leave and that's clearly important because, um, the, you know, the people giving birth need to heal before they can even like physically heal before they can even go back to work, let alone take care of the baby. But with paternity leave, I was talking about the importance of how if men who have access to paternity leave actually took it, as unfortunate as this sounds, but it would set a precedent that it's okay to take paternity leave and that it's something worthwhile and worthy to have within a corporate business setting, right? So like women are kind of expected to do it. Mm -hmm. Men, and I, I relayed the story of my husband who when... We had my son. I I was a student. I um, stopped working full time, and I was a grad student. And he was working full time, and he had asked his employer what the paternity leave situation was. Well, the employer was shocked because nobody, nobody in the like, you know, many, many. This is a l- old company. Um, nobody had asked about a paternity leave, which just floors me that nobody had asked. Um, so his boss had to kind of check into it and joked, oh, you're, you, you say you want it, but you'll be back in two days. You know, you're not going to want to stick around kind of old school. Yeah. Joshing. Right. And my husband was like, no, it's our first kid. We we're pretty sure we only want to have one. So this is kind of like an important big deal for me. Um, so they gave him two weeks of paid paternity leave, which is, I thought it was generous given our country's lack of anything. Um, and then he was able, they were able to give him a week of vacation and then a week of unpaid under FMLA. So he got a whole month off when my son was born, which sounds luxurious, um, but it's still insufficient on many levels. Um, but the fact that he had to fight for it, um, in a sense and push it and push uh, his employer who was like, Oh, like, you know, you're not going to really want that. And to tell his employer, no, actually, I would, which seemed to be an eye-opening experience for the employer, um, is a really big deal. And I think if more men did that, it would set a different precedent and perhaps change things. You know, it would benefit everyone. I mean, absolutely. Studies show that countries that have, um, put, you know, paid leave have better employees, better outcome, better output. So we're just, I, I don't know why we're behind still. Well. I think that the wave is building, but it's still sort of, we haven't reached our peak on this by far. We're still developing momentum on all levels of that conversation around maternity leave. Mm -hmm. But But I'm hearing more and more about it. I'm really encouraged that it's part of, you know, the presidential um, platform in some cases, you know, it's, it's important. We're talking about it. Yeah. And it's happening also state to state, right? So Massachusetts just passed something where, um, empl- uh, so FMLA only affects companies that have 50 or more employees. Right. So Massachusetts just passed something that any 
um, business that has five or more employees has to offer some sort of leave. It's not paid, but it at least secures your job. So it's, you know, it's not, is it a great step? No, but is it a better step than what we have right now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the issue of feminism during prenatal care is Mm -hmm. something that I am really passionate about. And I think that it is more commonly referred to as the empowered patient. Mm -hmm. I like to call it being pregnant like a boss. Yeah, I like that. And I want women to recognize that healthcare is a contracted position where mm-hmm. the healthcare provider is providing a product, which is inf- information and services. Mm-hmm. The customer is the patient. And when you're hiring a contractor, you want to hire somebody who's going to do the best job for you. Most people don't think of their healthcare relationship with that sort of dynamic. And in fact, they kind of flip things where the doctor or midwife or healthcare system is completely in charge and they have to do whatever they're told, much like they did when they were a child. Mm. And I am wondering if in your healthcare experience, when you had your, your um, son or in the conversations that you've had with women through developing your books, if you're seeing that issue come up? I definitely think that's a huge issue. And I actually was fortunate that someone close to me kind of explained it in that that very same way when I was pregnant. Because what happened was I moved um, to a different state when I was six months pregnant. So I had to find new um, care, new providers. And I just was getting so frustrated and almost gave up and just said, I'm just going to go with whoever. And someone said, just remember that they're working for you. You need to find someone that meshes with you. And it's not about just going with anyone or someone because you think they're the right one, just they're the right one. They need to be the right one for you. And that, that made a big difference. And I lucked out in that I found a, um, a group that had midwives. And I had seen a midwife for my regular um, yearly care. And even before getting pregnant, I just had those, because it was easier to get an appointment with you know the midwives mm-hmm. in the practice. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, why not just continue care with them? And what was interesting is that within this practice, I guess the midwives weren't as frequently used as the OBGYN. So when it was time to give birth, I was my midwife's only patient on the ward. So that meant she was there for me in its entirety. She came in, she read my birth plan back to, you know, back and forth. She really had nothing else to do except hang out with with me. And my birth was pretty, um, as I like to say, a standard textbook, very easy, I guess, um, very, it was non-intervention, non-emergent, like very, you know, no no surprises, uh, very straightforward. And... I think because of that and because my experience was so just, I guess, typical, and I don't want to say typical, but it was just a very um, mellow experience. I'm able to look at birth and talk about birth in a detached way. Mm-hmm. Rather makes- from a point of trauma. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what I found is that people who, who tend to want to talk about their births the most and are, are so impacted are ones that really felt a loss of control 
Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that doesn't necessarily mean all women who have had C-sections, because I have met women who have had C-sections, and not necessarily planned C-sections, but emergency C-sections, who still felt um, valued and a part of the process and okay with their births. I think that's that's not as that doesn't happen frequently, mm-hmm. but when it does, you can tell the difference in providers. It means that if they had started with a midwife and complications arose, that when they transferred care, that there was a com- camaraderie where the midwife was still allowed to be in there helping with the um, surgical delivery, and there was clearly like a combined effort to be with the patient rather than somebody taking over, chastising the patient for going with the midwife in the first place, mm-hmm. or having some sort of... Um, kind of a patronizing right I mean I think there's so many there's and it's horrible to say but there's so many examples you know the, there's that woman in Florida who had a forced c-section there's the woman out in California who had a forced episiotomy right um, and that was you caught, used yeah. you used the word patronizing mm-hmm. which comes from patriarchy my friend yeah <laughs> absolutely paternal I mean that's you know I think there is Still, I think while most practices, I want to say, most providers go with best practices, which have been shown to be really, let's just call it what it is, midwifery standard of care is, mm-hmm. are, is best practices. Yes, it is. Um, and I do think a lot of practices that include um, surgical staff and doctors do try and follow all of that and hospitals as well. But there are still plenty that are kind of the old guard. Yeah. And I think it's those. Oh, new guard too. It's not just old guard. A, a plenty of yeah. young residents are coming out of med school having been trained to be very, very medically defensive, medical legal defensive. And so their practice. Well, you said it right there. It's the yes, legal, right? Yes. It's the insurance and the legalities. And I can understand the fear in yeah. new residents who are, you know, okay, maybe we could wait a little longer, but if we do a C-section now, we know that the outcome will probably be Fine. a healthy, you know, yeah. a, a healthy baby. Yeah. Um, but, what, you know, but, what, but I mean, you could wait five more minutes or 10 more minutes and let the mom rest for a second and see what happens. Right, um, right. But, yeah. I, you know, I, it's, it's hard. And that's why with the perfect birth myth, again, I'm coming from a place of very, I don't, not like Zen, but, you know, like very neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a bad experience. I didn't have an orgasmic birth. I just, I had a birth and Mm. I was fine. My son was fine. Um, it wasn't earth shattering, life changing, great. You know, it really was as neutral as you can get without sounding detached or apathetic. Like it was great. It was a birth, but it wasn't. Um, and I know, and it's funny that I'm thankful that I had such a boring birth. Mm -hmm. Um, given the stories that I hear and given the stories that have been shared with me along the spectrum, whether it was horrible quality of care, women feeling shamed because they got gestational diabetes, women who um, were shamed by their choices um, of lifestyle perhaps while giving birth or by being pregnant and giving birth, women who are shamed for asking for things that really should be standard of care. Um, But like I said, like we said, some places still are hesitant or resistant because that's just not the way it was done, whether that has to do, you know, if you want to have skin to skin or whatever it is, you know, it's remarkable what some places um, still think is okay. Right. Change comes so slowly in some parts of the country. So you touched on um, 
Myth of the Perfect Birth, and we haven't had a chance yet to talk about your books. So the mm-hmm. first the first book, and this is actually, I think, where you and I met, was when you were launching The Good Mother Myth. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, your next... Yes, because Christy was the... Um, she wrote the foreword. Right. Right. So I think that was my intro into Every Mother Counts and so your work. And let's let's talk a little bit about that book. Sure. So that came out really a year ago. Um, it came out right a year ago, no, two years ago. Oh my goodness, it's been a, it's been a while. Two years. Um, it's been a fast while. It really has. <laughs> Just last year. Yeah. But it came out two years ago. But you know what? This book was years in the making. So it feels like it was such a long and de- it felt like a birth in and of itself. Like I had a long labor with that puppy. And um, but it's a book that I got in my head because I was so frustrated with the way mothers and parenting, but specifically mothers, were being portrayed in the media. And this cockamamie idea of of the mommy wars that's so fueled by interest groups and media rather than actual women being like pitting themselves against other women. Um, And just that there were so many you know, the voices that we were hearing, whether it was on things like the Today Show or uh, in magazines, were very one note, um, and that many women didn't see themselves represented or their families represented within these stories, and that was dangerous because the messages being portrayed, whether it was on mommy blogs or Pinterest or Facebook, was to be a good mother, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and A, not everyone wants to do X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z doesn't work for every family. And maybe every family can't access or afford X, Y, and Z. And so what about the rest of us, right? And so it all kind of came to a head when uh, News, was it Newsweek? Came out with the Are You Mom Enough cover. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. With, yeah, with a woman, very tall, beautiful, blonde woman with, what well, you know, they dressed this boy up to look like he was almost a preteen in camo and spiky hair. And he was standing up on a box nursing his mom. Yeah. And obviously the cover was meant to invoke outrage and anger and mommy wars. and Very all provocative. That. Very pro- provocative, which was such a red herring because the article inside was pretty mild. It was not a provocative article. Right. Um, it was actually a decent one about, you know, mothering and different types of mothering and support for mothers. It was fine. Um, and about the pressures on mother. But you wouldn't have known that, right? So the article got so much play. I mean, the cover got so much play that the article was forgotten. And all it did was rehash all of these old, ugly fights that mothers have. So, or that people say that mothers have. Yeah. Yeah. And so this book kind of came in. So I was like, that's it. We need to get more stories out there. Um, And so I just started asking friends of mine who were writers and I started getting, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And I just put out a submission and it, the the um, anthology includes you know over thirty essays from a diverse range of women, uh, young mothers, older mothers, single moms, uh, married moms, mothers on the LGBT um, spectrum, mothers who have dealt with mental health issues either before, during, or after pregnancy and delivery, um, women from various socioeconomic statuses, women of various races, women who have adopted, women who have given up babies or had abortions. Um, it's a really interesting, you know, it's funny. Some of the um, praise I get for the book is that it's very diverse. And some of the critique I get for the, bo- the book is, oh, it's almost too diverse. 
Oh, my God. It's comprehensive. Uh, I think it's comprehensive because I think having read the book myself, you can see a bit of yourself in each of the essays. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about it is that it takes it. It lets women off the hook from thinking they have to be the cookie cutter mom. And it also opened up the door to the fact that and I think you and I have talked about this before. You know, those mommy war conversations. I've never actually had one with another. No, mother. who has? Like, what you breastfeed? I formula feed. Like, we can't be friends anymore. No, right. that's happening. No, it's not happening. We're the ones. It's like what the, you know when you go to therapy and your therapist tells you the narrative that's playing out in your head. Right. Is not what's playing out in anybody else's head because they're worried about what you're thinking of them. Right. And that's that is motherhood. That's, but amplified times a thousand, right? You're thinking, well, they're judging me for using a stroller and formula feeding. Well, they're judging me for co-sleeping and only feeding my baby organic or making my own baby food. Or we're, we put the pressure on ourselves, but, you know, completely supported and completely fueled by society around us pushing these messages, right? So it's not, you know, we haven't done this in a vacuum. It's happening supported by all this media and everything um, around us. And so my goal was let's get other voices out there so that a mom dealing with postpartum depression can pick it up and realize she's not alone. A mom who had a miscarriage can pick it up and realize that, yeah, we should talk about miscarriage just like we talk about getting pregnant, just like we talk about abortion, just like we talk about giving birth. Why shouldn't we talk about pregnancy loss in the same way? It's part of the cycle. and so just with every, and even if you're, you know, there's an essay about a mom who smokes marijuana. So even if you're not a, a, a marijuana smoking mom, you know, you have your own vice and you probably think in your head people are judging you because of the glass of wine you have or because you go on vacation without your kids. I mean, it could be whatever that vice is. Someone will think of a way to kind of play, ju- um, late in it with judgment. And so yeah. with the new book, it's not an anthology, but it, it was kind of, it was, I kind of got the spark from the good mother myth in that the more I thought about it, the more I, you know, I discovered that we start this even earlier than motherhood. It's really when you become pregnant that these judgments, these worries, these concerns happen, but they can have a more potentially harmful impact when you're talking about birth because maternal and fetal um, health and mortality are at stake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, because like, I mean, formula versus breast milk, cloth versus reg- diapers, whatever, that's not necessarily a life and death situation. Right. In the grand scheme of things. Right. I mean, there's always going to be, you know, those outliers. But when it comes to birth and how you give birth, who you choose to give birth with, what access do you have to providers what access you have to prenatal care, to proper nutrition, to um, exercise, to support, to insurance, that can have a very real and lasting impact on the health of you, your child, your family, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So you're in the writing phase with that book. I'm in the writing phase, um, and I have a partner in the book, um, Deb Wage, who is a certified nurse midwife who was for a very long time faculty at um, Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Um, So she taught in a teaching hospital. So she taught students to deliver. um, But she was also a midwife who was a huge proponent and early advocate of um, group style prenatal care. 
and she had three home births. So it's really a treat to work with someone who's been on the whole spectrum from home birth to midwifery to surgical, you know, to teaching in a hospital um, and being very aware of that. And so she's kind of my not so silent partner, we joke. Uh Uh, It's like a 70-30 split. And so she's there to bounce ideas off of. She's also a little bit of a different generation than me. She actually has a daughter my age. So it's really great, though, to have. uh, I mean, she's really just a treasure trove of information um, and perspective. And I'm kind of bringing the research leg of it all. And we're basically looking at aspects of pregnancy and birth um, and bringing in, bringing in some narrative to make it interesting and engaging. So each chapter starts with a little birth story from somebody. And then we use that birth story to jump off and tackle the issues broached in that story. So that could be insurance. You know, we look at something like home birth and, you know, if you were the New York times, you'd be painting home birth with a very trendy, stylish, brush but when in reality a lot of women are choosing home birth because they cannot afford the co-pays for a hospital birth that with right. their insurance a hospital birth is actually thousands more than a home um, birth with a midwife would be which is shocking and appalling especially because you know people are so pro hospital birth and yet many people can't access it right that happened to me when I was having my second child who is she's 26 now so this is a this is a uh, you know an issue that's been around for a while where my husband had to switch jobs during that pregnancy and I was in nursing school and <clears throat> we lost our insurance company and the price of delivering at the hospital was it, we couldn't afford it so we found a midwife and we ended up delivering in her office wow. which was an excellent safe and really really great experience um, but it was primarily. Um, inspired by finances. It was just unaffordable to be able to go to the hospital. Right, but that's not going to make a sexy New York Times cover versus like Brooklyn mommies who birth in their, you know, brownstones. Oh, that's a good, I hope that they haven't used that title yet. That's a good one. Uh Um, But like birthing in brownstones, there's your new, you know, coming soon to HBO. Yeah. Um, But I, I really feel that a lot of the times these, just like motherhood, a lot of these stories get co-opted for a sexier more clickable version. Right, right. Um, the reality needs, you know, the reality is much more dire and needs education. I mean, you know, look at Detroit and their maternal mortality rates and how they're higher than countries. Right. Certain, you know, they have, it's a city that has higher maternal death rates and fetal death rates than full-on countries. Yep. Um, yeah. It's 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 upsetting, and it's upsetting that we're not outraged at this at a global, you know, at a national scale, um, the way we should be. And well, it's picking up some international critique. There was that oh, re- sure. report that came out last week by the United Nations Work Delegate. Did you see it? Yeah, yeah. Where for those that haven't seen it, um, a working group. That's of, why I of, started saying international, but I, I pared it down to national because I was like, <laughs> no, the rest of the world knows how bad we have it. <laughs> Yeah, the rest of the world knows things that the United States constituency does not. And or, or ignores. Yeah. So essentially, the very nutshell version of that is that a United Nations working delegation came to the United States to evaluate women's status um, from a, a legal perspective and from a human rights perspective. And they came away just appalled yeah. at 
the conditions that American women live with, and the fact that the United States is supposed to be this shining beacon of humanitarian righteousness, when in fact many of the basic human rights that we insist upon for other countries, we do not support here in the United States. And the result of that is, you know, we're seeing greater disparity, more poverty, more women dying in childbirth. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. Right, especially when we have access. We have we everything. Have, we have it. And we have all of it. <laughs> misappropriated and right. red taped and it's just, oh. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm hope, what I'm hoping with this book is that, you know, it's not, this is not a book that takes a position. This is not a boo hospital, DA home birth or, you know, you bad home birthers, you're killing whatever, you know, right. and DA right. hospital. It's not. Again, back to my boring neutral birth. Um, this is just a, simply a look at the system and a look at the idea that there is supposedly this notion of having a perfect birth. And to be honest, what we've found so far is that that can mean different things to different people. Like somebody would think that a vaginal unmedicated birth in a birthing center is a perfect birth, whereas somebody else feels like a pre-planned um, C-section is a perfect birth because we have access to such amazing technology. So just the idea that a perfect birth, is there's such a spread, um, but that really we we have a broken system. So the idea that there's even this concept of a perfect birth is just not realistic in this country because we don't have a system that supports any notion of perfection. So on a really different subject, you've written a bit about the decision to have one child. Yes. Tell me a bit about why this was a subject you needed to write about. Um, for a few reasons. One, because people in my everyday life, whether they were close or just random people on the street, felt the need to comment on the size of my family. Uh-huh. And this was a great way to kind of in one fell swoop um, get my position out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it was just getting my voice out there because I knew I wasn't alone. And when I, I've gotten so much great feedback from other families who have only one children, one child, and they were like, "That essay was great. I could have written it. I've I've xeroxed it and sent it to my mother, or I've, you know, I've cut and pasted pieces of it to put on Facebook." And um, it's just really, you know, it made me feel less alone. So it was a little selfish in that respect, for sure. Um, but like many of the things I write, it, it seems to strike a nerve and a chord with people. Um, cause I think, you know, in the idea of the perfect mother, she definitely has more than one kid. I don't think that that's a secret, um, to, you know, but the, the perfect mother doesn't have four or five no, like no, I do. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And I wrote about that in the intro. I said, you know, she's got more than one, but less than four so you know two maybe three depending on who you are right right because like maybe like a a white woman in the suburbs in an affluent area three is okay but a woman of color living in an urban apartment area people start to look at three in a much different way it's I mean it's very and I think for a lot of these issues it's super important to look at that intersectionality and and uh, how people are being talked about I mean then we can get into the whole uh bad mother myth that's kind of popular like look at me I'm so bad I have wine when my kids at soccer Ooh. um and again and how that's like safe bad 
right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that. Safe, bad. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Who And who is saying that? Like if one woman said that versus another woman, who would have CPS at their door? Right, exactly right. Yeah, so, so much judgment. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's a lot. Like you go on all day, like looking at the women, you know, someone who co-sleeps and they're they're so concerned about being like, oh, people get so hard on me because I co-sleep with my kid versus the family that sleeps in one bed because they live in a one-bedroom apartment. Right. Um, and co-sleep out of necessity. Yeah. So it's really, it's interesting. And, um, and I think a lot of things get picked up into trends very easily without people realizing that there are real lives and real stories behind the people who um, these so-called trends are, you know, impacting their lives. So I feel like we could talk all day. Oh, but, gosh, yeah. But there are <laughs> a couple of sort of closing questions I want to ask you. Okay, and I'll promise I won't uh, go on too long. Oh, you you get to go on as long as you want. Okay. <laughs> um, one question is sort of where are you in your life as a mom or in your relationship to motherhood right now? That's a hard one. Um, so my son is going to be nine in a couple weeks, and he's in this wonderful stage of kind of growing independence but at the same time needing so much still, but really flexing that independence so that it becomes, you know, I'm getting a a brief glimpse of what I can imagine teenagehood to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's interesting. Um, We've also reached a point where, you know, I check in with him about, can I write about this? Or he'll come to me and be like, you might want to write about this, mom. (laughs) Um, And I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if it makes for a compelling story so much. Um, because he's his own person. I mean, he's always been his own person, um, but he's really voicing that. And while I ha- we have so many internal day-to-day, just, you know, parenting things, mothering things, a lot, I, I really am focusing um, more on issues that impact people overall. So for a while, my big th- and still is um, uh, motherhood and mental health. Mm-hmm. And talking about it, I just um, had a illuminating, a wonderful conversation with Shirlane McRae, who's um, the first lady of New York City, uh, Bill de Blasio's wife. And her, she's really on just an overall mental health um, initiative in New York City. But one of her big, big uh, sub-initiatives is maternal mental health. And she was talking about how she wants to get to a place where they're screening every single person who has given birth for postpartum depression in a given amount of time, mm-hmm. which is amazing and would be incredible if our whole country could get involved in something like that. But will screening be enough? Do we have the resources? Well, that's part of the whole, yeah, screening's just step one, but yeah. making sure that it's not just OBGYN and midwives that are screening, but pediatricians. Right. Because a lot of women don't see a doctor for themselves for six, eight weeks postpartum, um, where a lot of these issues can pop up. And then they're done. They don't see somebody again for another year. Right. And that's the period of time when it can really exacerbate. But they're seeing their pediatricians for all of those set visits that you're um, going to. So, yeah. And then, of course... um, beyond screening uh, another initiative of theirs is then treatment and whether that treatment is having support groups or people that can come to your house or um, 
you know, easier access to doctors. Cause you know, even if you, a doctor, an OBGYN or a pediatrician kind of says, okay, so you've got PPD, let's get you in to see someone. It could sometimes be weeks or months until you can actually see somebody, which can be d- dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. So, Your other option is just emergency room care. Right, which as a mother, I think a lot of people fear because what does that mean if they can only take me as an inpatient or, you know, or they separate, what if I lose my kids? Right. Um, and so I think there's still a lot of stigma. There's a so lot of shame. Much, so much stigma and, and shame. And I think it's also PPT, PPD sorry, gets um, center stage, but there's also postpartum psychosis. There's postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD. I mean, there's, a, you know, there's an array. And there's also regular mental health. I had um, an anxiety. I, I was diagnosed this past, last winter, so a year ago, um, with severe debil- debilitating anxiety that really took me out of commission for a good few months. Um, and it was scary. And I'm still living with it now, thankfully, because I have access to providers and medication and a whole range of healthcare options um, and the ability to change my life a little bit. You know, I've been making it work, mm-hmm. um, but it's made me a bit. So that's where I am, I think, in my motherhood journey is that really focusing on things like mental health, which then in an intersectional framework, um, that means you're also talking again about paid leave and support and, you know, paid time off and flexible hours and all of that. All of the issues that we started with in this Mm -hmm. conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Avital, thank you so much for joining me on the call today. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this as well. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. My guest today was Avatar Norman Nathan, author of The Good Mother Myth. You can see more of Avatar's work at avatarnormannathan.wordpress.com. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting and the Power to Change the World is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, and everywhere books are sold. You can see more of my work on my website, genefaulkner.com. If you have questions, email me at gene at genefaulkner.com. Thanks for joining me on Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power. And please subscribe, share, and leave us a rating on iTunes if you feel like it. Thanks for joining me, and let's keep talking. Someone will look at